Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 16th, 2023. Our regular viewers and listeners to the show know we spend a lot of time on the very problematic, intricate, an interesting relationship between we humans and other species on our planet. Um, done many shows. Recently, mm. great American philosopher Martha Nussbaum on why animals should have, in some ways, I think, in her mind, the same rights as humans. Uh, we've done many shows with really talented, enormously talented naturalist writers like Ed Yong on how animals can help humans develop sympathy, one with Jackie Higgins, a British writer based in Africa, on what animals reveal about our senses, another with the great uh, polemicist, I guess, uh, animal rights activist Carl Safina on the importance of human humility in the face of nature, uh, and one with a, a young writer, Justin Gregg, on what animals reveal about our own stupidity. Um, also did a very interesting show with Karen Backer, uh, Canadian uh, scientist on how we are learning uh, to talk to the animals, how we have technology now that will enable us to communicate. But of course, um, novelists have always been able to communicate with nature, with other species. It's been a historic feature of, um, of, of the literary world. And today we're uh, exploring that with my guest, Laleen Paul, who is a teller of what she calls human animal stories. Many of you will be familiar with her 2014 hit, The Bees. Uh, and she has a new book out, came out last year in the, U in the UK, but it's out this week in the US, Pod, a novel. And it's uh, a book written uh, from uh, a non-human perspective. Uh, Laleen is joining us from East Sussex. Laleen, um, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by human-animal stories, and that's H-U-M-A-N-I-M-A-L. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, it's a portmanteau word that I just grabbed. I'm trying to think, being in the publicity cycle again, rather than the stomping about in the garden thinking of story points. And I thought humanimal is what I try and become when I'm writing these stories. I often get asked, you know, how do you anthropomorphize bees so we understand them? And with this, you know, how do you, uh, somebody has said, how can you make yourself a clam? Uh, because giant clams feature in the story as well. But the thing is, I don't. I study with a very hard remit uh, the organisms, the creatures that I'm going to be writing about. And I study them until the statistics get to the point where I can't understand anything more, which is plenty of research. Uh, I did laugh, actually. I was listening to your podcast um, yesterday with Ben Ramalingam, and you said that you don't, uh, you're always worried when something leans on research. But actually, research is the spine of the work that I do that takes a non-human point of view. 
Well, I always joke, Lillian, and it's like, <laughs> like most of my jokes, they're not very funny, but I always joke that when people say, well, the research says this or that, it yeah, usually yeah. But it doesn't. It doesn't mean that there's no legitimate research. So tell me a little bit about how you became a humanimal writer. Um, oh. Your background is as a screenwriter. Um, yeah, how did yeah. you fall into this? I don't know if it's falling or well, if that's the I think, way of describing I think it. I think it's a regression and a reversion to my true nature, which was, you know, not good. I only recently found out about something called discalculia or discalcula, which is like the numerical version of, of um, dyslexia, where your numbers get transposed and you find it quite difficult to, you're very slow at reading numbers. And perhaps as a response to that undiagnosed childhood condition, stories became a very welcoming place and animals didn't even need language. So I became fascinated with animals and then felt like I sort of had to give that up in, in order to become a grown up. And it was always there. And that side of me was always um, slightly in the shadow. And I became a screenwriter when I lived in LA. And when I was at university, we didn't study anything past 1960. Um, you know, I was there a thousand years ago. Uh, there you go, there's an example of my numbers. And so I didn't really think of myself as somebody who could be creative in that way, I could appreciate it. And time went on and I became a screenwriter uh, which is a very producer-driven medium when you're in the foothills and the trenches in LA, which I was. And then I came back to London and became a playwright. And then what happened? I got commissioned to write something which was very bold. And um, I was commissioned at the National Theatre to write a play for the big stage for the Olivia. And I did. And it was about... Um, why Charles Darwin sailed on the Beagle in the first place. And that's another story, literally. And it is an incredible story. And my play was called Boat Memory about that. And anyway, so that got me into drama. And then I wrote, I tried to stretch my wings even further, wrote something under commission to another theater, which was met with utter horror. Uh, like, why do you want to write about this? This is shocking. Um, I don't understand how you can think, I lost my agent because of it. And uh, long story short, it was about a woman who tries to heal the world of men by giving them sex and love. And um, it was called the book, The Bed of Common Prayer. And it didn't go on. And I thought, oh God, I can't do it. I can't write for television or uh, the stage. I'm gonna go and lick my wounds. Uh, and then I came across the story of the laying worker in a beehive. Uh, who becomes the hunted criminal when she spontaneously becomes fertile, which is in conflict to the 40,000-year-old rule of the hive that only the queen may breed. And that became, she became such an incredible character. So that became the bees. Um... That was the genesis for the bees. And I didn't have a problem at all in imagining how it might be to be a citizen in a very well-structured society and to love your regent, and then to find out that you're a criminal, but for motherhood to trump everything. And I'm a mother myself, and I knew, and my daughter was very young at the time, 
And I knew that there would be no law on earth that would make me give her up to, for death uh, if I could save her. And so that became the character of the laying worker. And then I just imagined this very strict society where you have, you know, anywhere you have a regent, anywhere you have monarchy, you have a hierarchy, you have a tiny elite at the top, and then the failure of all the goodies to trickle down. And I found that this was a fantastic vehicle to explore a lot of things about the world we live in. And yet I kept it to the truth about the organism because that kept me on the straight and narrow of, you know, with so many amazing choices because honeybees are extraordinary. And the natural world, once you start really paying attention to anything, you know, the structure of a leaf or the social structure of a, of a hive, everything becomes miraculous and amazing. And that whole, I got this sort of rush of awe and this thrill of, oh my God, I'm allowed to do this now. I can do it as a job and I can get stuck in. I'm working in total obscurity. Nobody cares. And I do think you get paid for Tuesday mornings at about 11 when it's raining, when absolutely nobody cares what you're doing except you as a writer. And so many Tuesday mornings and I wrote the story and I just absolutely let myself go and live in the hive. Mm. So um, on your uh, Twitter page, um, you uh, you refer to storytelling and the climate uh, and the climate crisis. Yeah. Uh, you're you you're obviously a storyteller. You're a novelist. You have a background as a screenwriter. Uh, we've done a number of shows on telling stories about the environment. One with two particularly gifted writers. I think Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth. One a fiction writer. One a mm -hmm. non nonfiction creative nonfiction writer. The other a naturalist. And also with the Harvard professor Martin Pushner on a 4,000-year-old reading list for confronting our climate emergency. Do you see yourself, um, Laleen, in the bees and pod as a polemicist? You're clearly a storyteller, but are you telling stories essentially about the climate crisis? Is no, that the core of not. your work? I'm not. And I started doing that Substack because I thought I really believe in pod. I really it's been a while since I've been published. It's been a while since I've been published in the States. And it's a great honor. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. And so I was taking advice about how can I get this book to readers? Because as you will know better than me, the number of books that come out and somebody, some someone who knows her stuff said, okay, you won't get any attention as a literary writer. There's just too much out there, but you're getting asked to speak. And in the last year, I've been asked to address Asian business leaders at the House of Lords. I've spoken to an industry um, event at BAFTA about how to bring storytelling into all scripted drama. And I'm not an expert in the climate crisis or climate change or anything except I've written some books which clearly have emotional leverage. And emotional leverage is the thing that changes the world and changes, you know, it creates rebellion and it can move mountains. So that's so let's get to uh, the subject which is on all of our minds, at least for the show today, your, your new book, uh, your mm -hmm. new novel, pod tell us a little bit about it how you got 
from the bees to pod. I mean, yeah. it, it seems natural now in retrospect, but things always look natural in retrospect. It's, um, it's quite a journey from writing about bees uh, to writing um, about uh, dolphins, uh, no, from, from the narrative voice of a, of a bee to the narrative voice of a dolphin. Sure. Uh, the Missing Link is my middle book, which is, the, is, I think, going to be the weird one, The Ice, which is written in the world of men very much so, uh, and set in Svalbard in the Arctic. And so I wrote The Bees, which was well-received and had a strong, uh, so I'm told, a strong feminist thrust to it, although I never intended anything that's been imputed to it. Uh, and then I thought, okay... I don't want to write another animal story, but you can't study pollinate. You can't study honeybees without becoming aware of the plight of pollinators. And you can't study pollinators without having to recognize the massive issue of climate change, which is most clearly seen in the Arctic. So I started reading about the Arctic and then became fascinated and became fascinated by Svalbard which is the Norwegian archipelago and the most northerly inhabited place on earth. So I went to Svalbard and got completely transfixed by the beauty of the Arctic, the scale of it, the fragility of it, all the stories there, and the wildlife, the whales and the dolphins. Um, it was mainly whales that we saw. Anyway, I found out about whaling, thought this is too terrible, I can't go there. I didn't go there in that novel. But, you know, things stick in your psyche, don't they? Uh, so then on holiday in Mauritius, an ill-advised swim with the dolphins trip took me into the water uh, with a load of other ignorant tourists interrupting a pod of bottlenose coming home from their night's hunt. And this... Uh, it was a very big pod, and they came streaming past at top speed all around the humans in the water. And this female with the calf with her came really close to me. I mean, you know, a couple of feet so that I was moved by the water. And she looked me in the eye, and she was buzzing and sounded like shrieking. And they were all buzzing and making noises which... You didn't need to, you didn't need artificial intelligence to understand they were really upset and pissed off, but still avoiding these annoy annoyances. And I suddenly felt incredibly guilty and embarrassed. And when I got out that day, I found out about that pod of bottlenose dolphins. And they had moved into this bay following an oil spill, which was unreported up the coast a few months earlier. And there had been a pod of um, spinner dolphins that were resident in the bay and the bottlenose drove them out and the spinner dolphins were never seen again. And I just thought, oh no, that's a migration crisis. So was <laughs> your shame, uh, your embarrassment, Aline, in this swimming incident, was it an individual one or did you feel shame on on the part of our, our species collectively? Well, I didn't, I didn't get to that bit for a while because I did not want to write that book. Um, I felt embarrassed that I had been so stupid as to not consider the circumstances of swimming with the dolphins. And, you know, my reaction to stress, grief, uh, anger, whatever, is usually to kind of cut myself off in, 
not go to the emotional bit, but to try and rationalize it. So I started reading about the difference between spinner's dolphins and bottlenose dolphins, and it's incredible. Uh, the bottlenose are patriarchal. They're really robust compared to the spinner dolphins. They survive in captivity. They're the only species of dolphin that I'm aware of used in warfare um, and in marine parks, that very unpleasant term. And spinner dolphins have this, uh, they, they are much closer in physiognomy, the males and the females. And when you get that, uh, that low level of sexual dimorphism, you usually get a more cooperative gender relationship. And the, I believe that the females of the spinner dolphin uh, species initiate mating and it's a matriarchy as opposed to the patriarchal bottlenose dolphins who have harems and political alliances and are much more violent. There's much more uh, violence within the pods. And I was resisting, resisting, thinking, you know, this is too difficult. And also I've done my animal book or my insect book. I don't want to be you know, that kind of person that just can only write that thing. Uh, but then I remembered the stuff about whaling in the Arctic and what I'd found out about the trashing of the high seas and the uh, overfishing and the absolute lack of regulation or care. And in fact, it's really exciting because just this week, The Guardian reported this NGO Bloom, called the Blue Marine Foundation, who have been working on protecting, recording and protecting tuna stocks in the Indian Ocean. And they found that the dark fishing vessels that turn off their transponders are insured through London insurance companies. So now that, you could say that's a tiny thing, that's just two or three ships maybe, but that is a start. And, you know, you can't research cetaceans without coming across ship strikes, whales, whale language, ghost nets, the plight of sharks. And I, I'm very proud that POD has been used in a campaign in Australia to draw attention to the fact that shark nets don't work and, in fact, uh, kill far more sharks than they save people. So it, I did start getting upset and I thought I've either got to just ignore my feelings, ignore these facts, or here are the ingredients to a huge story that I'm intimidated to write, but I'm not gonna be able to write anything else until I, it's like a story parks in front of my imagination. And the only way to get it to move is to write the story. So that's how- You, you, uh, you had a piece on uh, LitHub where we publish as well. Um, you, you write, I've never meant to write a climate trilogy, but with my new novel pod, I'm forced to acknowledge oh, yeah. that I have. The story yeah, is yeah. based in real animal and environmental biology where the strangest yeah. things are true. Yeah. It's mainly told from the point of view of a young female spinner dolphin forced to survive in an alien bottlenose dolphin culture. But it's a wider story of ocean survival with a variety of non-human protagonists all sharing one world. Talking about the the point of view of a young female spinner dolphin. How did you do that? Or how do you do that? <laughs> research the spinner dolphin, uh, re research the animal, research the, uh, I can't remember the official proper scientific term, uh, the other species of that genus. Um, and the research will yield up incredible details that you would never 
be able to make up or dare to make up. So, you know, they have a, I, I found out when researching the use of bottlenose dolphins by the military, that they're given a huge amount of drugs that are given to human beings. And I said to this ex-Navy SEAL trainer, um, you know, how can they, how can they give them these things? And he said, well, they're more like us than not like us. So we try what works. So, you know, I don't know what I don't know about the drugs they're given, but I, I did hear that they were given painkillers that humans are given and given amphetamines to keep them going and um, benzodiazepines to calm them down. And so I thought, well, they're actually more like us than not. You know, they have love relationships. They live in family groups. They're found well, everywhere. We're more like them. Than... So, so you wrote oh, on, yeah. how do you start calling cetaceans people? Where do you stop? And, and of course, that's the yeah. almost a, a post-Darwinian observation or challenge. Where do we stop, Laleen? Yeah, I know. I know. For instance, um, I, I was very interested, and I will catch up on the episode you did about pets, I think. Um, is it Martha Nussbaum? I was scribbling. Yeah, I think you'd find Nussbaum. I mean, she's a heavyweight American philosopher yeah. who's just written this book yeah, on yeah. animal so, rights. It's it's very, very difficult because so I remember someone saying to me, nobody wants their view changed about, um, and this was about painting a garden shed, but, you know, what is comfort food? Uh, I don't know what yours is. Mine is dal and rice uh, because I, I'm of Indian origin. Yeah. Um, so that's what my body wants at certain times because it's comfort food. Now, if you say to people, you can't have a BLT or you start saying, well, you know, don't come back from the supermarket with anything other than expensive, organic, free-range meat. And they say, well, you know, that's all very well for you to say, but it's too expensive. And I, I don't know the answer, Andrew. I think there is a massive amount of cognitive dissonance. I have it. You know, I the double-decker death trucks that go by in the country uh, with the faces looking out, I know where they're going. Um, and what do you mean? The, the, what, what is a double decker de death truck? <laughs> is that chickens or pigs? Sheep, sheep, you can't see the cattle, but you do see the sheep. And uh, to remind everyone, Aline is, has a, a home in East Sussex in the yeah. countryside, so you yeah. see those double decker well, death. I see it a bit more and I, during the pandemic. Are we gonna? We did a show with um. Satnan Segera at the beginning of the uh -huh. week about the West escaping, how the West can't escape its imperial past in terms of the European guilt of colonizing the rest of the world. Um, does this, what you talk about, these double-decker death trucks, we're going to do a show <laughs> later on Auschwitz. Um, is this yeah. ultimately going to come back to be an I issue that we can't escape? Are we going to, in 100 so. years, are people going to say, how could you yeah. have... Yeah, How could you I get really, those double deck of death traps of sheep or pigs or chickens? I do really believe that, which is why I'm wrestling with my own cognitive dissonance. And, you know, I live with uh, three boys, a man and two big teenage boys, uh, or I have done for a while. And gradually everybody has moved over to plant-based, but there are still, you know, meat extravaganzas and high days and holy days, as it were. And... 
I wouldn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not there yet in terms of a completely ethical diet. Um, when I was in Hong Kong, I walked down. Okay, so here you asked me what brought Pod about. Um, I was invited to the Hong Kong Literary Festival and walk, walking down a street at night looking for a restaurant, there were cases of giant humphead wrasses and huge fish on the street, floodlit, no room to move, um, fairly battered looking. And while the group was debating where to eat, I stopped and was staring at this Napoleon humphead wrasse. There was no escape for this fish. And I thought, I'm being asked to recognize something here. This fish is looking at me. And, you know, maybe once people would laugh at me saying that, but I think that's less likely now. Not because I've written a book, because I think slowly, slowly the needle is moving closer to compassion. I really hope so. Uh, you talk about um, compassion, Laleen. Uh, you wrote, uh, we're only going to solve our extremely urgent environmental crisis if we allow ourselves to care with all our hearts. There's a spiritual element there. But we did a show um, this week with a very different kind of thinker. Mark Jacobson, he teaches environmental science at Stanford. He has mm -hmm. a new book out um, on... Um, which is called No Miracles, which suggests that we now have the technology to address the yeah. various climate and clean yeah. air crises. Um, you, you, you're more of a, a, a spiritualist, I guess. Uh, <laughs> is there a role for science here? Science is obviously part of the problem, but can science as well help, you know, joking oh. about research, can that help us get out of this yes. crisis in, in association, in alliance with your spirituality well i don't know it's nice of you to see me as a spiritual person rather than a, a venal lazy one which is <laughs> another side um we have to have the political will and to make the changes we need to in time and we will only have the political will if we use our power as citizens and voters and consumers and we raise our voices and we have the confidence to raise our voices, if not to demand the answer, but to ask questions. Because if something doesn't make sense, we need to be raising that question repeatedly. And so somebody, you know, journalist, someone like yourself, you don't have to answer the question, but raise the question. And we are living through extraordinary times. And today on the radio, Radio 4 in the UK, I was listening to a debate about the energy companies um, paying themselves enormous dividends while people are the proliferation of food banks. These things are all connected. The climate crisis, poverty, our reliance, our addiction to fossil fuels are all part of the same Gordian knot. Now, you know, we know what happened to the Gordian knot. It was cut and very cataclysmically. So I have no answers, Andrew. I only... So I let's, only... Uh, let's, let's imagine you're a novelist. You can imagine things that most of us can't. Let's imagine that Karen Backer is right, that in the not-too-distant future, we will have technology that allows us to talk to yeah. other species, the yeah, sound yeah. of life. That's what you're doing, in a sense, in, in, in your literature. What will these creatures tell us 
How will they, what will they say, Laleen, if we meet a dolphin or a bee? What will they say to us? Let's end on that. I would say, what would you say if your family were being rounded up for slaughter? What would you say if your home was going to be destroyed? You would want life. You would want protection. You would just want to go about your business and live. Uh, I don't know. AI is moving us much closer to being able to understand the language of whales. There's Project SETI in Dominica, which is a fascinating project. I urge anyone interested to have a Google of. It's open source. It's fantastic and international. And um, there's a book called The Mind of the Bee by Lars Chitka, who is a scientist at, uh, I think, Queen Mary's part of London University, who is working on bee honeybee communication. And we know now that bees do have actual words. We don't know. We know they make sounds which have meaning. So I don't know what animals would say. I would say probably what we would say in parallel situations.